Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends and Young Kids. Follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Lyricist Hal David once said, quote, Many singers have lovely voices. Very few interpret lyrics the way they were meant to be sung. And Christine Andreas does just that. Her rich soprano has filled our hearts for many years, but it is her rich and nuanced acting style that puts her voice in a category all of its own. Now, some of her stage credits include Words and Music with Sammy Kahn, Angel Street, Eliza Doolittle in the 1976 revival of My Fair Lady, Laurie in the 1979 revival of Oklahoma, Frankie in the 1983 revival of On Your Toes, appearances in Rags, Legs Diamond, The Scarlet Pimpernel, La Caja Fall revival, Fields of Ambrosia, not to mention an iconic career as a cabaret artist, a career which has rewarded her with the Mabel Mercer Award as well as Bistro Award, not to mention her Tony Award nomination. She's done it all. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Sammy Kahn, Agnes DeMille, George Abbott, Mr. Abbott, George Rose, Mary Wicks, Peter Allen, Peter Hunt, and so many more, here is the winner of Suffern High's Best Actress Award, Christine Andreas. Christine, how are you today? Um, I do too. I'm well. I'm very well. So before we got on the air, Christine was telling us you are actually, you're in Florida right now. And what did you get to do recently for the first time that you haven't done in a long time? Yeah, I got to perform live for an audience of real people. And we've actually, my husband and I, he's a composer, Martin Silvestri. We've managed to keep ourselves pretty creatively buoyant during this time, but... You know, we've done virtuals, we've done, you know, virtual performances for, you know, we've done many things to keep us alive, but we've been, yeah, many things. But to stand on a stage in front of people, albeit masked, albeit, you know, separated two seats from each other, um, was, you know, you kind of, it's not that I forget what it feels like. I guess I just forgot how happy I am standing there and doing it because I just put myself on hold. This whole year. This year has not been tragic for us, you know, and I'm very grateful for that. And we potted in a way where we kept in touch with loved ones, even saw loved ones. We all did our little testing, got mm-hmm. together particular holidays. I have a special needs kid. He stayed with me for the first three months and then for over the Christmas. And we, we managed to 
just, you know, stay in touch with the things that matter for us. We've been fortunate. And as I say, we're older, so we have our pensions. And so we weren't stressed about and For the first time maybe in my whole life, this has actually been just a pause, uh, but in the best way, you know. And I know about meditating. I know about taking time for oneself. But that's how it's been. All that said... When I stood in front of those people with Sanibel Island and did uh, the new show that I've written on Edith Piaf, thrilling just the back and forth of it. And, you know, having not done it, you know, saying some prayers with that little edge of terror, like, you know, but I always feel it will always come together no matter what. But um, Mm -hmm. because you can always save yourself in front of a crowd, even if you have to go back up to the piano and look at the script. But um, and they they like that looseness and I love performing with my husband and so it, it was fantastic and um, and everybody was open and willing and happy and you know audience wise you know they just were I guess so happy to be there. There's oh, that yeah. common sharing because we've all been through this and so they're happy to be sitting out there. They're happy that you're up there and a great deal of respect in terms of distance and all. I mean I, I just don't live in the total fear of. Right. I, mean, I, have, yeah. I have intelligent here. <laughs> you right. know, about right. Absolutely. So, so it was, you, it was wonderful. So you're, you're the first person that we've spoken to uh, that has been able to perform since this, this pandemic began. So now having done it once, do you feel, oh. you feel comfortable jumping back in and doing some more of the concerts? You know, I guess it really just depends on, on where and what, you know, you're, you're just aware of, you yeah. know, what's the travel. Right. You know, I, I miss, we have as part of our life, and I've done it since the early 90s, we have cruising as a part of our life. Elegant mm-hmm. cruise ships where we spent, we do maybe four or five a year. People thought that's all I was doing for a certain yeah. period. But, but I did it first with the Theater Guild with Helen Hayes and Patricia Neal and Milo O'Shea and Chris Grondahl and his beautiful wife. I mean, we had this Dana Ivy. It was this magical, mystical cruise through the Greek islands. What a At a time when I, oh, it was, well, you know, just a little stuff right before. Yes. I went to bed the day before the call came. I looked up to heaven. I had just gotten out of a rotten marriage. Sorry, I chose it all, but it was a very difficult marriage. And I, and I was free, and I felt good. I was doing a soap opera. My life was working. And then this little voice went, yeah, but, just as my head hit the pillow. And it went, but what? And right before I fell asleep, it went, are you having any fun? And I fell asleep. <gasps> and the next morning, this call came in, and it was a cruise. And I went, I'll take it, because I had a vacation coming up from the soap. And it was like gypsy heart time. It was so magnificent. Anyway, so... Why was it so fun? Just, well, working with those people. And I'd never been to Greece, Santorini, all the... Is magical and and they were fantastic and there was a certain Greek sea captain. Uh, <laughs> it happens. Include that or not? And I was a free girl, so yep. yes, was of course. About it, and he had been an Olympic gymnast. <laughs> God bless. Kevin's covering up his face. Anyway, I'm laughing. Don't have to put that in, but it was. Oh no, that was going. I came back and they were worried on the soap that I would have put on weight. And I actually Uh-oh. lost like five pounds. <laughs> and I had a certain, I had a certain glow. <laughs> well, I mean, 
mean, you deserved <laughs> it. A lot I of, did. I really, yeah. and it was, it was fun. So anyway, yeah. that's what, what that was. So that's a piece of our life. And I actually, what I, so your, your question was, how would I feel getting back <laughs> so many years ago? The question you asked was, <laughs> how would I feel, you know, going out there again someplace else? I don't know if I'd be comfortable on a ship right now because mm. it's proximity, even though certain yep. ships do certain things. I don't know that I would, but maybe in another month. I mean, it's happening very quickly, the recovery. I've yep. had my shots um so you know i might be fine uh and and depending on the venue and the travel it's all those particulars so i'm i'm smart about it okay so you're on a ship with people like helen hayes patricia and what is any memories or recollections of of being surrounded by people like that well just I guess that Patricia Neal stayed a, a sort of an acquaintance for a while. She was very open, very feisty. God, I wish I just can. All I can see is Dana, Ivy, and I'm me on a camel <laughs> in Egypt mm. when you could still walk on the pyramids. Oh wow! And touch them, you know. I mean, wow. I just you know in America, you know, our, we're so young, the country, and when you go to these ancient places. It just really takes you back to mm-hmm. feel. I mean, I remember crawling through the pyramids, and they're hot and dusty. And you have a crawl space where your body just fits through the crawl space till you get to the top. So we're at the top of Cheops, mm-hmm. and it, and there's this ancient-looking man who looks like he has never left the inside of the pyramid, sort of sitting in one little funny place, you know, and he's just making sure everybody's okay because the air gets thicker and thicker as you get to the top. And when you get to the top, it's like you're in an altered state. And I just broke out, of all things, it's really not appropriate, Gregorian chant. I just started singing Gregorian. I don't know, I felt like so holy having gone through because you could almost feel this ancient thing. It was very wild. So that's a memory, but it's not so much with the people as it was the world working on me. What do you think the biggest decision about your career that you ever had to make was? Well, that's one of those that I didn't do right. The biggest decision is probably at the very beginning. I was doing the bus and truck of the last leg of uh, Fiddler on the Roof. It It was the very last leg of the tour and it was the original productions. It was oh, wow. all those original values. It was a beautiful show to do as a young actor because all those values, you know, all that strict. I mean, when I saw later versions of Fiddler, I couldn't believe what they were doing because in ours, it was Jim Robbins, you know, yeah. was the real guys who had the vision. Anyway, uh, I remember we were in Florida. I was a virgin. I was 19. I was in a pool. And there was the guy, I was Huddle, playing the role of Huddle, and there was this really, really cute guy playing Perchik. And I really was attracted to him. And he was seeing another girl, you know, how mm-hmm. companies can be. And I was sad, and I was looking at him in the pool, and suddenly he turned around and he looked at me. And I just thought, oh, he's interested. Okay, I wonder how that's going to work out. And I heard the voice go. And I was also the first time I'm one of eight kids, okay, and second oldest. So I was used to, I was like, you know, a young parent most of my life. And I loved my brothers and my little sister, but I was free. This was now my life, my choices, my freedom, and I loved it. And I heard the voice go, this way is freedom, and here's this guy. Freedom, and then I, and I chose the guy. And so if I had chosen that way, 
You know, I would have given myself so much room to keep exploring myself. Mm-hmm. But, and there's nothing wrong about going with a guy. Mm-hmm. But I was the kind of person that once I was with somebody, I kind of lived through them, too. I was, I mean, I was, I was like 13 years old here. I was very unsophisticated, you know, um, but I was so curious about everything and in a way completely fearless. So had I gone my own direction, you always wonder, you know, what? Mm-hmm. Like when I got my fair lady several years later, the same night I heard that I got my fair lady, I went, oh, poor, I won't give his name, but poor Dana. I mean, when is something going to happen for him? This is my victory. I got my fair lady. Why didn't I just scream and yell and jump up and down? And, you know, yeah, yeah. all I could think of was this poor guy. When is it going to happen for So that was, you know, the kind of, you know, craziness of me when I was younger. Did you go right from high school into mm-hmm. the business? Oh, like, oh yeah. I, and, and so, <laughs> really, and did, were you cultivating that all throughout high school? I mean, because you got best actress and female actress in high school, but... but I didn't you, know I did. I did. You did? <laughs> I that somewhere. Yeah, but were you cultivating, were you going to see shows? What was your first show? You know show? what I did? I never saw a single show. We, we, we didn't live far from New York. We were no. in Suffern, which, yeah. you know, it's a 40-minute or so bus ride, it never occurred to me, Kevin, to get on a bus and go into New York because there was this big family. I was needed at home. You know, I, I was very, again, I was very immersed in my life through my family. But the beauty of my life when I was younger was my mother was a natural singer. So she sang all, all day long. She had a real pretty voice, like an alto voice, real pretty. And she sang, I say this often, but you know, very unselfconsciously and very joyfully. It was such a release for her. And hearing her sing, and she would have, she had this little 45 RPM record player on the kitchen, the fridge. When I was a little, little kid, we lived in South Jersey then. And she would have that on, or she'd have the radio with all the, you know, current singers, the greats, you know, playing, or, you know, the show tunes. You know, on the 45, she would put King and I on, and, and I would sing and dance to them on the linoleum kitchen floor. So I never had to learn a single score when I came into New York because I had I just had sucked them up, you know, as a kid. And I could feel the characters through those phenomenal, you know, singers, Mary Martin and Ethel and Julie and, yeah. you know, oh, so many Barbara Cook. You know, and later on, Streisand, later Angela Lansbury, you know, all these shows, MAME, all these were the new shows later on, you know. Um, I could just see myself in all of it. And again, this inner knowing was that's going to be what you're going to do. You're going to do that. There was I'm very fortunate because there was never any doubt. I I knew that I just knew that was going to be my life. In fact, Fair Lady was really odd because um, I had worked with both the director um, and I had just finished playing a Cockney maid in Angel Street. Mm-hmm. And Fair Lady was the next thing that happened. And Angel Street, one of the, the, the male lead, had been Rex Harrison's understudy, which is actually the least of it. But all that aside, I knew I was going to do Eliza. Nobody could have convinced me otherwise. And I just waited for them to figure it out. <laughs> I, did. I was actually quite calm about it all. You know, and so it didn't surprise me. When, and that's not ego. It wasn't like I'm the only one who can do this role. I, I didn't think about it. In, you know, I'm not going to I'm going to get it over her or her, her. I never thought that way. I just knew I was going to get it. Then I had to deliver it. That was another kettle of fish. But you know, sing it. Yeah, sing it. That was rolling off a log. And in those days, it was just yeah. I was destined to do that. And I knew it. 
Well, taking us before that point, how did you, you know, a lot of people go to school, they learn how to do things in college. How did you know what to do when you were treading the boards, when you were going? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. If what I was auditioning that, like then, what was uh, what was it like? I opened my mouth. I sat, you know, because I was going up for musical theater. All I had to do was open my mouth and God gifted my throat. You know, this mm. is a gift. My voice is a gift. And I connected to lyrics thanks to my mom in a very unselfconscious way. So I sang, he touched me. He touched me. Yeah. He put his hand near mine. And then now, nowadays, maybe you couldn't sing that song. But in those days, this was a beautiful song because it had a beautiful release. And, and I would sing this song. I couldn't wait to sing it. You know, the, the secret of auditioning children is you pick songs you can't wait to sing. That is so much a part of yourselves, you know. And then when you get out there, you just can't. So no matter how you know, off-putting it might be, once it starts and hopefully, you know, you like the way the guy's playing it or the girl's playing it, you just let it rip. And it's that complete unselfconsciousness and charm and investment that gets you the job yeah. and talent. <laughs> but that, that's what gets you the gig. I mean, I went into New York on the bus with Dennis Decker, my high school leading man. I got out and I had How to Audition by Michael Shirtliff under one hand and I had all the theater newspapers under the other arm and I got out across from Port Authority and we're talking 1969 it was quite mm -hmm. dangerous right there Port Authority I just went right to the phone booth across the street to call the to call the African room because there was a showcase and I wanted to be part of the showcase so I put my dime in the phone across from Port Authority bus terminal and as I'm calling the African room Dennis Decker is walking back to the Port Authority without a single word. Freaked him out, couldn't do it. Never even said goodbye. He just, he just, I guess he was terrified, never told me. And I couldn't not do it. So I went alone to the African room. I sang, I believe, in front of a cheetah skin. And I got a summer stock job. And from there, one thing happened after another. Your first audition. More or less. <laughs> it was it was like was you booked the job. Like I did. I got I got yeah. some showcase. And from that showcase I got a summer stock job. From yeah. that stock job, I met a couple of girls who had an apartment in Queens, a roach infested, horrible apartment in Queens. Mm -hmm. But it was like you Queens do. and I was near New York. And I tried doing real gigs. Like I tried working in a restaurant and I got fired because I sucked as a waitress. Thank <laughs> you. And I tried working for a as a secretary and I sucked. And so eventually, eventually, thank God, they still liked me because I would do anything they asked. Um, so, but eventually I started getting, you know, in those days you just got, like, you just got gigs. Yeah. There was a lot, you got agents by doing open calls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got my first agent by an open call, you know. They so were, They I, were there, they were just at the open call and looking no, for No, no, they held, they held auditions for clients. Oh, wow. So I got my first agent, that, not, maybe not the best agent, but he was the one that, you know, and I got job. So he just. You know. When did you get your equity card? In high school. I did a local summer stock company. Um, I did summer stock and, and I did, uh, what were the shows I did? Uh, Fantastics and Guys and Dolls. And I got my card when I was, you know, 17 or 18. It, oh. That's how it was in those days. Now you pay yeah. thousands of dollars to get. And actually, my first card was AFTRA, because when I was in grammar school the last two years, you know, being a suffered in New York, one of the people in the parish was a director on a soap, The Doctors. And I got a walk-on 
on the doctors. The line was, I hope Mike has the flashlight. <laughs> and I got my aftercard nice. first. So after is actually my parent union. And then from there, I got my credit card. So before yeah. I ever, you know, was even in New York, I had both cards. Did wow. you have a specific kind of um, theater you wanted to do? Were you looking for revivals? Were you looking for no. legitimate non-musical theater? Since that, you know, it was one of your first big New York jobs. But what, well, were you... I, I loved musical theater when I first went to New York. And, I, and, I, and so what I've always really loved. There became, I was trying to be cool at one phase of my life. And I wanted to be known as an actress and not as a singer. Because uh-huh. in the early days, singers were kind of like second-class citizens. But actors were more like serious and revered, or at least in my mind. And also revivals were kind of like, well, you know, they weren't as important as original shows. But... You know, people like to pigeon you, and I, from Fair Lady, became known as ultimately the queen of revivals. Right. And, you know, when I auditioned for Oklahoma, I went in to see Billy Hammerstein and sang for him, and he offered me the show on the spot. And again, I've said this in many interviews, off on the spot, boom, offered me, and I, I said, I'm not sure. And he went, what? Right, I thought you turned it down, maybe. I, 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 I did. Somewhere. I, yeah. Actually, well, I kind of, I just said I'm not sure to him. And I, and I was about to say, I said, because I, and the reason is it's simple and it's kind of pure, really. I had done an, a wonderful summer stock tour of Oklahoma just maybe a year before with David James Carroll. It was a beautiful <gasps> former who passed. I love David James Carroll. Oh, he He's one of my all time favorite. Anytime, oh. anytime I can hear an anecdote about him, Christine, it is a good day. So he was uh, so uh, dear. He was such a gentleman. He was such a beautiful soul. He's, yeah. he passed early on of AIDS, but I mean, I still have a beautiful embroidery of a rose and a glove in Petty point, tiny little that he designed for me with his initials and my initials. Oh. Rose in the Glove, which is a lyric from um, one of the songs from Oklahoma. He was gorgeous. Um, And we did this beautiful, magical summer tour through the most beautiful parts of the country in the eastern seaboard, you know, all tourist beautiful Cape Cod and whatever. Um, And I just knew Lori. I I knew that character. I got her. I I knew what she was about. And she's a rather elusive character, but I got her. Being a feisty tomboy with six brothers, I just got who Lori was. Um, And so... I was more interested to find something I didn't know, to explore mm-hmm. characters that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I just figured Broadway was always going to be there for me. Mm-hmm. So when, when beautiful Billy Hammerstein asked me to do Laurie, it was also a revival of Most Happy Fella. And I really wanted to do Rosabella. It never really came to fruition. My agent took a brick and hit me in the head and said, please say yes to Billy. And I went, <laughs> okay, fine. And so then I ended up doing it, and, and, and it was miraculous to do it. It was, because when I did those revivals, you had a lot of the original creatives on board. And, you know, so you, stay, you didn't need to do them differently because people hadn't seen them in 20 or 30 years. Right. Or, so you just needed to recreate the beauty that was there again. Yeah. And you know, so we weren't trying to put, you know, girls in chaps. You know, Oklahoma is a very feminine, it's through Lori's eyes, it's a feminine piece. So I never really, but whatever. But of course, when the originals came back to watch us, they were like, what are they doing? So I mean, I can still remember Joan Roberts and I think even Alfred Drake maybe came. And it's like, they didn't even talk to us. Well, you know. Like we just, you know, there's a very territorial feeling, especially when you originate something, I'm sure. Was Agnes DeMille around? She was there too, wasn't she? Yeah, Agnes was choreographing. 
I mean, I have pictures of her and the girl dancers. It was like the altar of God to work with Agnes. And my one story with Agnes was, I just remember, because, you know, Laurie didn't do hardly any dancing. But I had an exit after many a new day to the music that kind of confused me. But she had watched me work, and she looked me, and she had her stroke, and she was in her little wheelchair, and her, and her arm was not functioning, and she held it a certain way. And she just said, she, she sized me up one more time, and she said, you'll figure it out. And that was a high compliment from Magnus. I took it as a compliment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the girls worshipped her, and, you know, the, the detail, it was a, be- it was a beautifully mounted yeah, it really was. Yeah. And Billy Hammerstein used to stand in the wings watching me sing. I heard the learn this later. I never knew. But in Out of My Dreams, I, I blocked myself. And, you know, in those days, again, the pit was in front of you. All the musicians were right there. Not one of them was reading a newspaper or looking at their phone. They were glued to the conductor. They were glued to the stage because there was always magic on the stage. You know, there was always something beautiful happening. And, and I used to go on my belly, right to the edge of the stage with this, you know, she has this bottle and she's making a dream. She's trying to make everything come clear. She just needs her head to come clear. And she takes the cork off the bottle and she starts singing out of my dreams. And, and I used to love it because I could see everybody in the pit because I'd be right on the lip of the stage staring. And I did this thing right before the ballet started. Out of my dreams, I'll go. And he loved that illusion I did. So Billy would always try to come to see the show right when I did that and stand in the wings and listen. I never knew that. Somebody told me that later. Isn't that sweet? It's even better that you didn't know, right? Because then you wouldn't have yeah. never, Then you never thought about it. You just, you just yeah, kept exactly. doing it. Yeah. That's oh, the, it's that's, so that's sweet. Yeah, so, wow. beautiful memories with all of those shows. Can we jump back a little bit earlier to talk about uh, the My Fair Lady revival? Sure. And, how, and how did all that come to fruition how was the rehearsal process and you would i'm assuming you would listen to julie andrews singing it. oh yeah i always love listening to the original some people don't want to do that mm. but i will never be julie andrews you know i just wanted to hear the energy and investment and i had listened to it all my childhood so yeah. how could it not be in my bones yeah, you know? exactly i wasn't trying to be her i just take the beauty of the artists i'm listening to and they're in terp and then it comes through me the way it comes through me you know I take all the ingredients that feel true and, you know, make my own soup. Um, and, and the times, I can still see they had me pitted against her. You know, they had the two flower girls facing off. They just had to do that. I, I never felt in competition. I, I, I laughed when I saw that. I went, oh, that's so ridiculous. I adore her. I, I, I never felt like, I never felt resistance, like I had to be her. The only issue with our rehearsal was it was three weeks long. That was it. And then three weeks out of town and bam into New York and out of town, Philly. That's not far enough away. And God bless Jerry Adler, who's a lovely, lovely, lovely man. He was the original stage manager of the original Fair Lady. And all he had was the blocking. He did not know a thing about Shaw. Ian Richardson, my Higgins, was God bless him, was a Shavian scholar. Oh my God. But even he was freaked out finding Higgins. And he did have a good deal of resistance with Harrison. 
which is a harder image maybe to and but but Ian's idea was to be more Shavian and to go more and he looked a little like Leslie Howard and mm-hmm. he went more in that scientist direction mm-hmm. um, which was fascinating but all of us were totally freaked out and had I been a more uh, seasoned actor I would have known to coach the role with someone but I didn't know that and so I just went on stage terrified I loved singing it I would have mm-hmm. sung it till I died that, mm-hmm. that part was easy and that did help a lot in my reception with Eliza but it took me a couple of months to feel like I knew something about presenting a Cockney flower girl and did anybody baby. help you with that along the way? I mean, I know you said you didn't coach anybody, but just, throughout the I months, just, did anybody just like you just? I mean, here and there, people gave me little things, but no. And I even went to Ian, and I, but Ian had his own issues, and he was a consummate gentleman. I mean, the, I mean, the doors were who I should have gone to was George Rose, but George Rose scared me, and that was such a shame because he, but he had an austerity about him, right? Right. Lovely, and only towards the end. George and I became good buddies and I would go to his apartment on Jane Street listening to Cockney songs and stuff and he loved playing these collections and he loved it. Okay, so Jerry set the show uh, with yeah. the staging from the original. Yes. Any, did any of the writers ever come by uh, to take a look or, or to give notes or feedback? Well, the original producer was Herman Levin and he was producing this, so he would come by. Um, Crandall Deal, who I think had been in the original company as a dancer, choreographed. Mm. Um, but I saw, <laughs> okay, it's my own fantasy, but I think it's true. Great. I think I could have been Mrs. Alan J. Lerner. Oh. I, <laughs> look at your little face go, oh. Did he, uh... <laughs> I didn't tell Charles this either. I think I could have been mm. only cause Alan took me to lunch at Sardi's and I, and he was free. This is pre-Liz uh-huh. Robin. And he was doing 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue at the time in Philadelphia. Right. And they were having a great deal of trouble with it, even though some beautiful things from the piece, it, they were in trouble. Yeah. And, and I just think there was relief coming to see this show. And he was more than, he was completely charming, but yeah. he was also a little interested, I feel. Yes. And I just remember having to say, oh, Alan, this is so fabulous, but you know, I am married. And I was not in a good marriage, but... Ugh, then I could have been Mrs. Alan J. Lerner. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then it would have been different. Could have been. <laughs> Hello, this is Julie. When I'm not playing a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman, I listen to Broadway behind the curtain. And I head over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And I search behind the curtain Broadway's living legends and set a monthly donation. Mine is $10,000. But you may give what you like. Whatever you give will be practically perfect. So, remember, Patreon.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So, yeah. Christine, let me ask you. So, you, you know, you, you played Eliza yeah. brilliantly and beautifully. And then, you know, Lori Brown. Eventually. <laughs> eventually. Eventually. And, you know, so many actresses are going to take on these roles, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years from now. What advice or tips do you have for people that are going to take on Eliza or take on Lori? Coach. <laughs> coach. No, I didn't coach have to touch with Lori. I mean, I think you know intuitively if you, if you have a good gift and a good sense of truth. You know if you got a good grip on the character. Yeah. You, know, you know if you do. But I don't think, I mean, I started coaching during Oklahoma with a wonderful, wonderful woman named Ella Gerber. I signed with a wonderful, wonderful agent named Bruce Savan at APA. He was classical pianist. Yeah. You know, I think it's not just about the role. It's about your support system and being with people that get you, get your gift, you know, mm-hmm. and friends, you know, who just are, you know, equally curious and hungry for, yeah. you know, figuring out who they are in, in a role in, in, in their life, you know, constantly peeling the onion and being authentic mm. in life as well as on stage. And if you have all that going on, because see, if I had networked more with friends, but marriage always consumed me, the, that otherness, I, I never allowed myself deep friendships, you know, and it's such ballast. It's such, uh, uh, you know, anchoring to allow more, you know, I had professional people. I mean, Mr. Abbott, which we'll get to, and his, his daughter, Judy Abbott, and so many people wanted to help groom me because I really was. So, Dina Merrill became the biggest fan and supporter of my life. And she opened up so much to me in terms of how one conducts themselves in a show you know, as the lead, you know, how you, you know, not that I did it in my younger years all the time because I was just self-absorbed in not the best way. So my advice to a younger actor is not just the part. It's about, you know, stay curious and, and, and about who you are in your craft, not just the craft. And, and maybe even have, you know, Omar Sharif said, used to have, it's good to have other interests mm-hmm. so that this isn't the only thing that defines you. You know, because it can be so consuming and you spend all your time looking sideways at other people doing the same thing, thinking and comparing yourself. You know, you don't run your own race. And the most charismatic thing to me on stage is an actor who is in a joyful place, even if it's a tragic role, you know, who is just the most who they are interpreted through a character. If you think about it, you know, the, the people you cannot take, that's why you like to look at kids and dogs. 
on stage because they can't be anything but who they are. And so the most, the more unselfconscious to me, the the greatest um, detriment and uh, problem with being authentic is self-consciousness. Because I can remember early on all those performances where I'm just watching myself going, no, no, right as I'm singing the note or saying the phrase, no, that wasn't, you know, you just, you're in duality. When, when, did, when, when did you think you got over that? When were you able to, to remove little Christine off your shoulder and just, and just go for it? I did in Oklahoma because I got that part. I just loved the role and the loving of it helps you with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was spotty. It wasn't necessarily a time. I mean, usually when I would sing, I would be fine. I remember when I was doing Fair Lady, it was Mr. Abbott's 90th birthday, and Anna Sosenko, who was a famous producer at the time, threw a big uh, 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 birthday party festival show, you know, for him, and it was at the Schubert, huge show, celebrating his 90th, and anybody who had ever worked with Mr. Abbott was there, you know, singing. And I remember, I, I have a picture of myself, I have... In those days, in the 70s, it was very cool to have your hair kinked, and I looked really ridiculous, and I'm in a really stupid dress because I didn't know how to dress yet. But I stepped on stage, and I was chosen by Anna to sing Mr. Abbott's favorite song, which is Falling in Love with Love. And this beautiful man, Colin Romoff, did this arrangement that was to die for. I followed Liza Minnelli. I sang the song, and and it felt magical for me, you know, I knew Mr. Abbott had sent me a fan letter when I did My Fair Lady. And the fan letter, he said, I really like your work. You know, there's no hokum in your performance, which is evident other places on the stage, but not with you. I had no hokum. And he became a fan. And anyway, I finished, I finished the performance and there's nothing. And I think, oh my God, this is awful. They, they, and then suddenly from the back of the theater came the thunder. Mm. the front of the theater and a full ovation and it went on and on and I I never experienced that and I didn't know what to do so I even forget while I'm telling you this but you asked me something (laughs) oh this is good I love it it doesn't matter if it got us here well you were saying it was a about roles or something, but yeah, it, it, it was about when were you able to finally stop oh, watching yourself? So I mean, moments like that. I mean, I had no self consciousness at all until the end, and then I didn't know what to do because I'd never had that kind of a reaction. But so that that came and went. You know, I mean, I was never real confident as an actress because I'd never studied. And my friend Ella Gerber tried to help me with that. She was one of the first directors ever in the theater. She did all the Porgy and Best tours. She knew the Gershwins intimately. Mm-hmm. She was incredibly soulful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and she helped me understand how to connect to text the same way I connected to song. You know? And so that was a big help. So Mr. Abbott's a fan. Uh, was he coming after you? Was he like, let's do this show? Can I try to use you in this I show? Don't even Can want I want to tell you what I did there. It's so terrible. Now, you know that he, he was Hal Prince's mentor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. His offices were in Hal, with Hal Prince. Had I even had half a brain? I didn't know that. And I didn't understand how, you know. And, and again, I was just this person who said no to Billy Hammerstein. So Mr. Abbott wrote not one, two different shows that he wanted me in. And at this point, I guess he's in his mid-90s, and I, and one is a gypsy musical, and I didn't like it, 
and we had a meeting. He wanted me to come to his offices and have a meeting. And there's so many ways to say to somebody like Mr. Abbott, you know, I just don't, you know, there's so many ways you could like not do the show and not say, I just don't like it. Mm. But I wasn't that sophisticated or smart. And I just said, Mr. Abbott, I just don't like it. <laughs> you don't say that to Mr. Abbott. But I know that now. Somebody maybe found it charming. I don't know. I don't think he did. And then he was doing a musical adaptation of Music Is, which was Twelfth Night. And I didn't like that. And I was right. It wasn't a good adaptation. I don't know if he... he and he was brilliant in his way. But it just... And I don't know that he did the adaptation, but I didn't like it. Him and Richard Adler did it. And I said no. And so I think he considered me difficult, but I think he still liked me. <laughs> and I guess I was difficult only because I didn't understand, you know, the finer parts of networking, collaborating. You know, I didn't understand. I, I, I just didn't. So, well, it sounds like you had an opinion and you and you went well, with it too. It, felt, I mean, it sounds like it difficult the, is also not, but it's being strong it and it's truth. being like. I mean, I, yeah. is it different than Streisand, except she made a lot of good decisions? <laughs> I guess <laughs> it depends different. on the decision, yeah. So, you know, yeah. yeah, I was difficult and ended up, you know, cutting things off rather than, you know, moving forward in, in mm. many cases. I, I guess, maybe that's not the way. I, I, I was well, nice. Did he work <laughs> on, on your toes with you? I mean, did you. Well, did, Guess what I did with that? <laughs> I was asked by Mr. Abbott to do on your toes, and it was my conceit, and I have said this before, that I was just getting a little old. I was 28 or something yeah. like that, yeah. and I thought, I don't want to do ingenues anymore. It's time to become a leading lady. So when they asked me to do on your toes, I said no. But I went to Dina, who was now a deep friend, Dina Merrill, and I knew she loved to sing. And nobody knew this. And it wasn't a great voice, but it was a totally good character voice. And I said, Dina, there's a role in here. And she knew Mr. Abbott well. And I said, you go after that girl. Do you know about this? Because I was asked early on, maybe, you know, it wasn't out there yet. I said, this is a shoe. And, and so she got the role. Mm. And she called me from, they were in out-of-town tryouts and they were in the Kennedy Center. And she said, Chris, would you just come down here and tell me how I'm doing? I, I just don't know how I'm doing in the role. I, I just, you know. And I went, sure. And so I go down there, and it's classic, you know, movie time, all about Eve. I'm suddenly mm -hmm. taken backstage, and they're checking out the keys of the songs, and I'm trying oh. costumes. They weren't happy with the girl. And so this was my second chance at becoming part of the show. And I, I figured, I usually figure I'm smart enough to know when something comes around twice, and I'd be hanging with Dina. I mean, hey, this mm -hmm. and it was wonderful. It was so much fun, and it was so pure. And I loved his directing. He directed with line readings, but right, we've what heard, he said yeah. to the line, it was totally bam, exactly the right intention. I mean, I had no problem with that. I hear, I heard what he wanted. Right, I right. right. Sound like Mr. Abbott saying the line. And, you know, so uh, we got along famously, except he didn't want to take me ballroom dancing, and I stepped on his toes a lot. I didn't mean to, but I wasn't much of a dancer. <laughs> he was kind of tall, isn't he? Oh, he was beautiful. What a beautiful man. Oh, God. So I think he forgave me for all my oh, past. Oh, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I so appreciated him. And John now, Jerry conducting. And again, seeing all the guys in the pit. And they had redone the score, this Hans Bialik score. They had updated the organizations. Mm. Oh, it was killer. It was killer. It's nice that you got nominated for a Tony nomination. Yeah. That was, that's nice. Opposite Betty Buckley and Cats. Yeah. <laughs> Great. 
And my other nomination in Oklahoma, opposite Patty Lapone and Navita. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, Marty said, don't be negative. He said, he said, well, if the guys ask you of it, I said, Marty, I'm, I said to my husband, I'm not going to be negative in this interview. So he said, I said, what did, what did I say if they asked me if I had any regrets? And he said, well, just say that, you know, it would have been great if, you know, Betty hadn't done Cats that year. Yeah. <laughs> they just postponed it a year. It would have just been like, great if it had been another year. That doesn't sound regretful. <laughs> that doesn't sound regretful at all. So, Christine, let me ask you, because this answer maybe has changed from when you were doing Oklahoma to the shows that you work on now, which is yeah. when you first sign on for a role, how do you begin approaching creating that character? I try to, well, this has always been true. I'm a classicist, uh, I guess, by nature, even though I'm untrained and unschooled because I went from high school into New York. But I love seeing what the original writers intended. So if something's based on a play, I find the play. If it's based on a book, I read the book. Um, uh, I try to get as much, and I look at the era, you know, I try to see what the era's about, what the mores were, so that if, if I'm comfortable totally with the writing, then I, I don't necessarily have to do too much, too much, because I already feel, ah, oh, I have this, I'm very intuitive, and so I go, yeah, I can put this coat on, this coat feels good, I, I'm comfortable, I can walk anywhere in this coat, I just know, but if I feel a distance from a role, I have to work a lot harder. And I, and I, of course, will coach. I will find somebody who maybe knows that period and knows that time and helps me connect with it because it's that connection that matters, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so which role in your career do you feel that you were the furthest away from? You know, Christine is, is far away. Well, from... I would be initially Shaw in My Fair Lady, initially. Okay. Uh, and then... I, just, I mean, Mrs. Patrick Campbell, who was it was written for by Shaw, was... 57 or something when he wrote it for her, a classical actress. Mm. It's complex. And it's complex human dynamics, you know, between her and Higgins. It's complex. So really getting to the heart of her and her conflicts requires sophistication. Julie Andrews famously had to go away for that weekend with Moss Hart. I mean, there were stories of that. I mean, she Jerry told us about it. it. They, they, had to, like, they had to study as well, one-on-one. Moss handed so, her every line reading. Moss gave her every line. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't become hers. And she was a seasoned sure. actress. She was born into theatrical families. So I forgive myself for being green. I just wish I would have known to coach. So, Christine, this brings up a really good point, I think, which is what do you look for out of a director? Help me hit all the points, you know. At the way I get to those points, I feel is my work. But what points do we want to hit so that the audience gets a complete experience from my contribution in the piece? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a piece of the piece. I'm one part of the puzzle. You see the whole puzzle. Help me hit all the things you need me to hit. So that, And then if I don't quite get what he wants... Or if I disagree, that's a different thing. But then you try to work that out. I've never had a director be that complete with me, except maybe Mr. Abbott. But that was it. You know, he was very complete, yeah. you know. And when I did, uh, let's say, and, and, and Laurie, I got all the pieces I felt. When I did Fields of Ambrosia, uh, mm. which was written. Your husband's piece. Yeah. And Joel Higgins, who I'm about to see tomorrow, actually. because oh, he's In Florida. And Joel's, they're both consummate showmen. They're both wonderful writers. Joel's a lyricist, a poet, a book writer. You know, um, again, it was all on the page. That character was all on the page. I knew that character. I knew what to do. But I was still open, you know, like, because sometimes you don't know when you're being a little too big. Like, I don't know when I'm 
overdoing it. Do you okay. read reviews? Do you are reviews something that you've avoided over the years? Or no, do you, I've always, do you read always, them? always looked at them. I was because no. even when something is not positive, or they say something that appears tough, if the writing is true, it rings. You know, and sometimes you really learn how you're pushing too hard or not pushing hard enough. Yeah. Pushing is never a good way to go, but yeah. if you're not, you know, assertive enough, or you know, you just learn how the balance is off in putting over the part, you know. I think if you're really in it for the truth, you have a good barometer, you know, uh, ultimately. You can't always yeah. see yourself as you're doing it. You know, that's why you rely on a director or a friend or a pair of good eyes out there watching you, you know, because you can't always tell when you're in it. It can feel so juicy. And you go, yeah. oh, my God, so good. And you're way off the mark. I'm, I, you know, Christian, I think you're our first guest um, out of the six years that we've been doing this that was involved with Legs Diamond. That's <laughs> true. That's an understatement. Here's the voice. I'll tell you a story about. Yes. Yeah, so yes. Yeah, so what do you want to know? Just whatever I have so, to say. Whatever. whatever you, we're so fascinated. Can you tell us about your involvement and your experience with this show? Well, Lex was so much bigger than the show. That experience was so much more than this show. What happened during Lex was, I'm doing the, the very beginning. You know, what we're in 890 Studios, wherever we. Oh, yeah. Just looking at what we had, and beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Peter Allen, mm-hmm. and all the producers. Marvin Krauss was this beautiful man, you know, who was one of the producers, and he was big, a big, open-hearted Charles Sapone who wrote the book and had been lovers, I think, with Peter. Um, the whole thing was a labor of love for Peter and Niederlander. What he was trying to do, because he loved Peter Allen, he was a consummate showman. He'd, he'd made Radio City Music Hall feel like an intimate room because he put everybody in the palm of his hand when he did his one-man shows there. You know, he just invited you in and you felt like you were in this intimate space. It was freaking Radio City. Um, That was Peter's magic. So he wanted to capture that in a show. And Charles wrote this piece. And so there it was. And we're in the studios and it feels wonderful. And I have these great songs and there's three love interests. And there's two, there's Julie Wilson, who was the older woman in Legs Diamond's life. And Legs Diamond was this notorious gangster in the 20s. And that's Peter Allen. And there was Randall Edwards. And she was like the floozy blonde. And I was this sweet ingenue singing some of the best songs in the show. Peter adored me. And we had these gorgeous costumes. Um, It'll come to me in a minute. Um, I mean, everything was wonderful. And then we had this hiatus. You know, we had like a hiatus while they, the creatives pulled it, but we looked fabulous in the rehearsal room. And during that last part of this initial rehearsal period, I said to Marvin, Marvin, I discovered I'm pregnant. And I was in my early thirties and I said, and I'm going to have this baby. So maybe you got to find another girl. I made the choice. I'm going to have the baby. And he looked at me and sweetly said, Christine, we're all pregnant. So you go off and you have your baby and we'll let you know when we're ready to start again. And I can't tell you how wonderful it was to go off knowing I had a gig and we didn't know when they were going to get it together. And my then, and we weren't even married yet, uh, partner was Canadian and we went back to Canada and he had a couple of gigs he was doing there as a writer. And I had my baby and it was a beautiful neighborhood in Montreal, Montréal, and at some point I was loving every second of it and I'm loving my baby and I'm nursing. And at some point my little boy Mac stopped nursing and I went, what's that about? 
I'm still, and it's about nine months in, nine and a half months in. And the phone call comes, he's nine and a half months old. And they go, Christine, we're ready to start. And I knew that my boy was okay with me now going back because, you know, he had, he no longer was like needing this. Right. And so everything indicated itself. And there was such beauty in that for me because I had been very much obsessed by my career, never leaving New York for too long, never be too, being too far away from the action. You know, it did own me quite a bit. And this made it perfect. So I go back in and Willa Kim was the costume designer. Beautiful, whimsical, fabulous. We get into the theater, the Mark Hellinger, and suddenly it starts to fall apart. What had looked so beautiful and wonderful. And Peter's not an actor, and he's certainly not a gangster. He's the nicest guy in the world. And his sort of way of delivering just wasn't cutting it, you know? He wasn't a killer. He, he was a little not, it just wasn't electric enough. It wasn't landing. His performance wasn't carrying the show even though he sang and danced his way like crazy. And so they bring in Harvey Fierstein and Harvey, when a show's in trouble, it goes faster and funnier. And my character was slow and sweet. So of course I was the first to go. And Peter cried. I mean, everybody cried. Everybody loved my character as well as they loved me. But it was a mercy killing because then there was a succession of people being let go because they were desperate. And you could see it, it was probably not going to happen. You said this earlier, and so now it's a good time, to, I think, to remind you. You said, ask you about the Carlisle. So yeah. Let's talk about the Carlisle and, and your oh. cabaret career. Well, yeah, I, I, it seems I never cut my teeth on anything gently. Like I go <laughs> from high school practically onto Broadway with no, yeah. with no acting right. experience. So I go to cabaret at the Carlisle. I mean, I had one little stint at the ballroom, which was really fun with my second husband. But um, when I met Marty, my current husband, Marty Silvestri, he's a consummate showman. He's a, a wonderful composer. But the showman piece was really great for the cabaret and concert stuff. Our first gig was the White House. Let me cut my teeth at the White House of George the I George Daddy, we did the White House, and and that's where, and I was falling. This was during the time of Fields when we didn't quite have Fields and Ambrosia together, mm-hmm. and there was that hiatus on Fields. And I really was quite attracted to Mart. I get to the Carlisle in a minute, but I was quite attracted to Mart. And he was on the other coast. He was on the West Coast. I was in New York, and Dina Merrill got me called and said, and she went to a luncheon at the White House, and didn't like the talent, and she elbowed George Bush and George. You got to meet my friend, Chris. And so that's how this gig at the White House happened. And and Marty and I made music so easily together, so beautifully. It was the easiest uh, collaboration I've ever, ever had with anyone. We just thought alike. We intuited alike. The music, one idea led to 15 ideas, you know. Mm. It was wonderful making music with him. And I still, the kernel of that White House set became the kernel of my first album, my first show that I did. Uh, not at the Carlisle, though. I didn't do that one there, not so much later. But anyway, through a whole series of events after the ballroom and after meeting Marty and after the White House, um, a, a mutual, a, a guy who became quite friendly with, I did some some corporate event. And the woman who hired me, um, her husband was the food and beverage manager at the Carlisle. This is how things happen. 
And they were looking for someone to replace Barbara Cook, thinking that, you know, she was now, I think, in her 70s and maybe going to think of retiring. We all know she kept singing well into, like, was she 90 or something? Yeah, she was, yeah, she was up there, Something yeah. amazing. But still, they were thinking about that. The Carlisle was privately owned. And this woman who had hired me for the corporate events spoke to her husband, food and beverage man at the Carlisle, and they gave me a shot. They gave me a shot. And I did a show which I eventually ended up recording called The Carlisle Set with four kick-ass jazz guys. Mm. I had never sung with jazz guys. I had no idea. This was a whole different kind of singing. I learned, I mean, I, I just learned. I had Blue Lou Marini of the Blues Brothers on reeds, Lee Musiker, who was the most gorgeous pianist ever, crazier than a bed bug. He would not, you know, but he was, but he knows it, and so am I in his way. But men at the piano, he was a god. I never knew what either one of them were going to do, and I loved that. But it was intensely musical. I had Dick Sarpel on bass, who's a beautiful, and Ray Marchica on bass. I mean, these were, and Ray Marchica drums. Uh, These guys were just, I mean, I I had to learn a whole, they were at my back, and it was like having a Ferrari behind me, you know. (laughs) And I would just have to learn, and suddenly I started singing, not as much from lyric, but from rhythm. I was singing in the pocket. It was a whole different, it's more like pop singing. And that's the difference between pop singing and theater singing. We don't sing usually, maybe more contemporary stuff now is from rhythm because it's more rhythmically based. But it's the way Ronstadt, who has a very similar voice to mine, but sings completely differently. Mm -hmm. She sings from rhythm, but she can do anything. She also, she sings very much with lyrics. But anyway, so that's what I learned with Carla. So I do that show there and then, and, you know, it's a slow start. The Carlisle cost $1,000 to go just to hear a show. So I wasn't filling the room. But the beautiful man, Dan Camp, who was then the big guy, the Carlisle just looked at me and said, Christine, Barbara didn't do it either in the beginning. We have to cultivate things. We're going to cultivate you. It's okay. Now, the next show I have you do, I want you to pick a theme. So I wrote a show called Here's to the Ladies, which honored the great ladies of the theater that I adored growing up complicated show for me a lot of talking and hard to sing all the 11 o'clock numbers of ethel and mary and julie and barbara both barbara's and angela and 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 then i threw in gertrude lawrence my ship and i threw in all kinds i mean i went all the way back anyway i did that show again you know maybe i did a little bit better but still not quite filling the room and so we're looking again and then they sell and i'm still they're still called it but then they sell the car lot they sell it to Rosewood. And uh, they have different ideas about how they're going to do things. Dan Camp is gone. And they don't really know how to run the room because they're... And so the whole dream of replacing Barbara Cook, also she's still singing, so that's not going to happen. But I get them to book me back one more time, redoing the Carlisle set, because now some years have passed. Um, I think we're going to nail this. And we have some nice crowds. It's not bad. It's not great. It's not bad. And I just remember Stephen Holden, who wrote for the Times, loved me. He had first reviewed me in a summer stock production of West Side Story that went to the Jones Beach Theater. Imagine doing Jones Beach 10,000 seats outdoors. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Yeah, right. I thought, well, Stephen will come, and that's going to fill the house again, or fill it better, and we're going to be okay, and they're going to want me back, because the Carlisle is just the most beautiful place to play. 
Well, Stephen's on vacation. They send Margot Jefferson, who not only doesn't like cabaret, she doesn't like girl singers. Uh-uh, uh-uh. And she didn't like me. Uh-uh. And I got one of the worst reviews I've ever gotten. And when Marty read it to me, it was really hard to digest. I couldn't believe it because I thought I was really good. But this is where you're not that self-aware. And the one thing she said, I mean, I don't think, I mean, she didn't say it was horrible, 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 but she just didn't care for what I did. It wasn't awful. You know, it just sounds really awful when it's not good. (laughs) And what she did say, though, because this is really what I was getting at, she talked about me just pressing too hard. And I didn't press too hard on everything, but I got that I could do that when I felt not completely secure. And also it's juicy. It's not just that you're, it just feels good to make a big sound, but it's not a big room. And so I started recording my performances so I could get more aware of when I pushed too hard, when I wasn't conversational enough, when I, and also just to save my voice. I don't have to do that. I just don't have to do that. So that was really valuable, even though I never sang or haven't yet sung, I ain't dead, back at the Carlisle again, that taught me a lot. Yeah. And it probably saved my voice, you know, yeah. somewhere in tear, because I'm still sounding good and I'm no spring chicken and I still sound good when I sing. So um, I sounded good last week doing Piaf, which is not an easy set. It went great. You know, it was not hard to do. I sounded, we filmed it during COVID. We filmed Piaf. So uh, it, it seems like a good fit, Edith Piaf, those, those incredible mm-hmm. vocals, yep. your yeah. incredible vocals. What are the, some of the challenges of putting together the show, of singing this insane music, learning another language? Um, how's that going? When did you get the impetus to start this? Well, I'll try to keep this short because there's many pieces to it. But um, I've, I've sung in French my whole life. I don't speak. Je ne parle pas de français. But because I'm a singer and because, to me, language is music, mm. I just am very comfortable with that language and I love refining it. The house I'm in right now, my cousin Nancy speaks both English and Italian. I mean, both, she sings, speaks both French and Italian. So mm. she would always be my, and she taught French. So I, you know, I run things by French people and my cousin Nancy and get comfortable enough with what I'm singing and saying and what's being, you know, what I'm saying, what I'm the the translation i know what i'm singing when i sing in french but still to do a show on pf i was approached by a french canadian musical director and i kept saying no because i knew that i would be schizophrenic learning it all be really hard to learn or did i want to take on pf i had just finished doing a show on garland and how tragic is pf and do i want to assume pf and then a parisian choreographer approached me Pascal Rieu of Rieu Dance Company, and he approached me with a show we written called Street Singer, and I loved it. So I did both different shows on Piaf, and I did a lot of research on her, and I read about her, and I come to find out what a high soul she is. She's, a, she's not Garland. She's not a victim. Mm-hmm. Everything she did was on her terms, mm-hmm. and she was also a consummate artist. I mean, she was a disciple of her art. And, and you know, a crazy life, and not a life... I could envision for myself, but true to herself. So she ended up inspiring me and she started talking to me because the difficulty with that is if I'm going to do a real person, a whole show on one person, I can't, 
I have to honor them. I, I, I have to be as truthful about them and, and give as authentic a life as possible. So the way I talk about the show is it's not finished. Because the more I allow, you know, I have to reread again the book that I read by Carolyn Burke, which is a great book, P.F. No Regrets, where she's doing the same thing I'm doing. She's taking the tragedy out of there. I can't stand just only seeing one side of a great life. There is more to Garland than the tragedy, but there's a lot more tragedy in her life than P.F. So when I did a show on Garland, I was sucked dry. Mm -hmm. And it was a very authentic show written by somebody who lived with her and loved her. Mm -hmm. But John Meyer, but... P.F. and the book, you know, you're seeing her through friends and family and lovers and protégés and mentors. And you just see a very complete human being, you know, who just was really crazy. Um, And so I love doing the show. I love channeling her. And I say, I'm not done. I say, when I say goodnight, I say, you know, I'm not ready. I say, well, you know, Jeremy, we are almost fini. And I'm not really ready to say goodnight, but I know that I will be journeying well into my later life with Edith. And I'll be standing stage center, singing my songs, and I'd say she's right here, the whole show, and she'll be standing there pestering me Hmm. until I'm able to give you the most honest portrait of her, which will change as time goes on because she was so grounded and I'm not the most grounded of people. And I, I know that she, I will just become better and better artists. And actually, because the French language is very much in the mask, it's not horrifically hard to sing, even though the songs sound. And my voice in every song is very different. Some songs, because I recorded it, my daughter, who's a documentary filmmaker, filmed it with her boyfriend this three, uh, uh, we did it in December, you know, filmed it, this beautiful film, which we did which is going to be put out there virtually, has already been put out there virtually. Uh, and, you know, that never would have happened unless COVID happened. It was supposed to be live. We couldn't do it live. So Tim Schall at Cabaret Project of St. Louis said, let's do it. And I said, I can't do it in my living room. It's not a living room show. It's a theatrical show. And my manager, Gary McAvey, a Columbia artist who's going to be touring the show, found the Kate, the Catherine Hepburn Cultural Arts Center in Old Saybrook. So they have just happened to have a half a million dollars worth of lights in this small theater. So we did the most beautiful mm. production, you know, of this piece in two days. Mm. I sang 12 songs in one day. It was crazy. We didn't quite know how it was going to, but it was one of those magical things. So this is what happens when your instincts are all in alignment, which has happened enough in my life, for all those times when <laughs> it hasn't come together quite that yeah. it wished. Oh, it's life. There's and times when it does. Yeah. And you make magic. Yeah. So true. So, so true. And so, so Christine, the, la- the last question that we ask our guests is, you know, what do you know now that you wished you had known when you were first starting out? So if you could talk to that, you know, young artist that was in port authority on their way to the African room. Yeah. What, what would you tell them? What did you wish if, you'd known? You, if you, to just keep listening to yourself, you know, to thine own self be true. Two things. One is to, you know, really care about the art in yourself. Because when you do, that pure Stanislavski, not yourself in the art, that's ego. But the art in yourself is that voice that keeps guiding you, even if it's saying, eventually it says to you, and you realize you don't have what it takes. 
You may not have what it takes to follow the path you thought you should follow, which could be to be in front of the spotlight, you know. Maybe you thought you could sing or act or whatever, but maybe you're really, all that, those skills you learned, you learn that maybe you don't have that, because my daughter was going to be a ballerina, right? Mm-hmm. And she learned she was never going to be the soloist, you know. And she had to make a decision whether she wanted to be in the core. Mm-hmm. And she'd loved it since she was three, you know, and it wasn't going to happen. So the next thing she loved, believe it or not, was Japanese. Okay. And the next thing she discovered she loved was filmmaking. So at 33, she's had three careers. But everything leading up to this documentary filmmaking, which might change too, the ballet and the Eastern aesthetic has helped her in her filmmaking. So I think if you listen to yourself and are honest with yourself, then, and it's not harsh self-criticism, it's constructive. You know, if I, I went this way and it just didn't make it better, so, you know, I went this way and I wasn't happy with that, but if I do this, and you keep refining yourself, you may end up doing something entirely different, but you haven't lost anything because whatever path you've taken up until that point of illumination, which says, okay, I think it's time to make a complete shift. And you don't know how, but you, you know what? In metaphysics, you don't have to know how. You have to know what. Mm-hmm. What? You don't have to know how you're going to go from A to B. You just have to know that B is what you want now, which could change again and again and again and again. Because I think nowadays in where we are now in our evolution, you might have many more than one areas of expression. You may have many more than one partner or no partners. It's not the same paradigm, you know? Right. It's simply about yourself in the world right now, paying attention, right? Paying attention, I suppose, is really the key. Mm-hmm. It's like right now, sitting here, talking to you, you know, what matters is me being as truthful in saying this as I can, because there's so many choices. But ultimately, there's only one choice at a time. Mm-hmm. And if you're paying attention, you make the right choice that leads to the next and the next. And that doesn't mean you're without pain, but pain is a great teacher, mm-hmm. you know? And we're all going to have pain. You can't avoid, we're all going to die. Can't avoid that. You, know? yeah. you can't if there's one way out, you're going to die. Just face it. Don't be so afraid of dying. It's going to happen. We used to, the Catholics used to say, pray for a happy death. See, pray for a happy death. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll go in my sleep or whatever. Oh, it's like, famous, you know, but it, basically you walk through a door and you're in something else. That's what the metaphysicians say. It's as easy as walking through a door and you're in something else. Even if it looks awful to the person who's seeing the car crash. Some, you're just really walking through a door and you're on the other side and that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. So my advice is to listen and to network well. Have good friends. When you are fully yourself making those choices, you attract the best people. And, there, and then when you are not necessarily making good choices because you're human, they're going, knock, knock, anybody home? Knock, knock, hey, yo. And, you know, if you love them, even if you go, fuck off, which you can edit, even if you say that to them then and there, it will haunt you what they said. Because mm-hmm. the truth stays in your being. You know, when you want to be truthful, the truth inhabits you. And so whatever isn't the truth will haunt you and you'll go, okay, what, what? And you'll tell yourself to fuck off, but then eventually you can't. (laughs) But it just stays there and you got to pay attention. And long walks in nature, nature, you know, any kind of, I I have 
my, I have a great, one of the things I do love about me is I have a great capacity for beauty. Mm. I find it everywhere. I find it in mud. I find it everywhere. I can find it anywhere. And it has always sustained me through my, my crazy choices, you know, so that, and I, and I trust it. I trust my sense of beauty and it's always served me well. So, well, you, you have, you have, <laughs> you have served us well today. And, and, and seriously, Christine, yeah. thank you so, so much, not only for today, Ugh. but all the amazing performances that you've given us over the years. Um, we cannot wait to see you back on stage again. And we thank you so much for today. Listeners, thank you so much for listening to us. And we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. God bless us, one and all. That's it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage right back where she started yeah true story rob saw it yes and it was batty it was bizarre i was there i was oh god so head on over to itunes and make us feel even more special than we already do Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.